one of the things that I have talked about a number of times since I've been your pastor is the importance of understanding God as a father. And so I want to talk to you tonight about the father heart of God, the father heart of God. And there are at least three groups of people here tonight that can use this. Uh, the one that I'm probably speaking to most directly would be that person who, for whatever reason, has great difficulty imagining what it means for God to be a father. Because, for whatever reason, your idea of a father is broken. And what your earthly father was intended to do by God, he was not able to do, for whatever reason. Maybe he was absent. Maybe he passed away when you were young. Maybe there was a divorce or separation. Or in worst case, he was abusive. And because of that, when you hear that God is a father, something in you reacts to that. And that's not a, a great picture for you. What's important for you to do is to understand that that's a real issue. And it's a real roadblock in your ability to experience God as he wants to reveal himself to you. And so across 35 years of ministry, I've run into individuals again and again and again who have great difficulty relating to God as Father because they're projecting onto God some of the characteristics of their earthly father. And so I'm speaking to you. Uh, second person I would be speaking tonight would be the fathers who are here because our role as a, as a dad, we are to represent the fatherhood of God to our children in many ways. And so he is our model for what it is to be a father. And, and to help our children begin to form the idea that a father is a good thing and that as they grow up and they discover God is a father, that they can just simply, and Lord willing, easily transfer their experience with us to their relationship to God. And so it's a real challenge, dads, and it's an absolutely impossible one to achieve unless uh, your heart is after the heart of God, who is a father. And I, I talk about this tonight because, because Jesus, of all the ways he could have revealed God to us, he was God in the flesh, and he could have revealed God to us in, in many different ways. In the Old Testament, he's revealed in many different ways. But the primary way that Jesus revealed God was as Father. And he did it so clearly, it was so striking, he was actually accused of blasphemy because he did it so much in the way he did it. The third group of people that I'm speaking to tonight are those individuals that are going to run into somebody this week who desperately needs to understand that God loves them like a father. And you're going to have the opportunity to share with them and to encourage them from God's word because of our time spent together this evening. Okay? So I, this is a very simple Bible study, and it's one that um, I developed for myself years ago. And I find myself turning back to these passages of Scripture uh, on many occasions in my prayer time as I worship the Lord and talk to Him. So, um, so let's talk about the Father heart of God. First of all, at the end of the Old Testament, we read this, this passage of Scripture. And these are just things you may want to jot down. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, 
and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And of course, that's a prophecy, at least concerning John the Baptist and part of his ministry. And so that, that relationship of father to children is a vital concern to our Heavenly Father. Um, when we talk about the role of fathers in the lives of their children, it's a vital relationship. The engagement of fathers, the research that's been done over and over again has shown that if fathers are not engaged with their children, the results are catastrophic, typically on those kids. And so they need someone in their life who is like a father, either a father, grandfather, uncle, um, a male figure who is like a father. But without the engagement of a father or a father figure, they're five times more likely to live in poverty, two times likely, more likely to drop out of school, ten times more likely to be a juvenile offender. Uh, girls run the risk of five times more than the average girl of teen pregnancy, and there's a higher risk of drug and alcohol abuse. So when the Lord is putting a nation back together, when he's putting a church back together, when he's putting a community back together, when we think of revival, when we think of spiritual awakening, one of the things God does is he begins to deal with dads, with fathers, and he begins to communicate to those fathers something of his heart. So I want to share with you tonight six characteristics of the father heart of God. We're going to move through this quickly. I'm just going to share with you a simple statement. Here's the first one. He is moved by the desires and needs of his child. God's heart is moved by the desires and needs of his child. Now, this is true of God, and it should be true of us as fathers, those who, who are dads here, that when we recognize the desires and needs of our kids, that it moves us. It, there's something visceral that it affects us. We feel something deep inside. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 7, this is during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, teaching on prayer, says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Now, who's, who's doing the giving? Who's helping find? Who's opening the door? Who's doing the other end of it? If I'm asking, seeking, and knocking, who's, who's responding? The Father. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? So this is Jesus. Listen. If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? And so he is not like a father. He's the, the model father when a child comes to him. And he, he knows your dreams. He knows your hopes. He knows your aspirations, and he cares about it. I, I had six children in my house. Please, Daddy. Please, Daddy. Please, Daddy. Please, Daddy. Please, Daddy. Please, Daddy. Not from one, but from six. Now, that'll run you to death. But his mercies, when we come to him as his children... His love for us is eternal, it is endless, it is overflowing. He deeply cares about your heart. And so when you think, automatically assume he doesn't care, that may say more about you than it is about him. 
Uh, his heart is so tender towards you. When this comes home, it can be overwhelming when it becomes real to you. But I want to suggest to you very strongly that if you don't understand this, if this isn't real to you, especially if you're a man, you need to spend some time on this passage of Scripture. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Second characteristic of the Father heart of God, He values His child. He values His child. Now, as earthly parents, we value our children. We do anything for them. We lay down our lives for them. He values his children too. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. He knows. He knows. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It didn't say all the feathers were numbered. I imagine he knows what those are too. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I'm making it easier for him. You have to think about that. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So if every little creature on the planet, if he knows what's happening to that animal, if he knows what's happening to that bird, he's intimately aware. A little bird flies across in front of you. You don't think twice about it. The Father knows all about that creature. And if he knows about that creature, and you are much more valued to him than that creature, he wants you to know that you're valuable to him. Uh, when I, um, I don't have a lot of treasures. You can, you can take a lot of stuff from me and it's okay. Well, I hope you don't. But uh, you can take my stuff at the house. Now, Gail may give you a good fight for it. Uh, you can burn it down. Don't, don't, please. Get any ideas? But if you go back in the office, I've got a library back there that has, um, I can remember the very first Bible that I had, it's back there. The very first study Bible I had, it's back there. And then as I began to, to study the books that most influenced me, where God spoke to me the most, they're back there. And over the years, I've given away books. I've given away hundreds and hundreds of books. I really have. I've culled out books out of my library, said, I'm not going to read that. That's not of great value to me. I've culled that out. But right now, if you and I go back there, you, and I, you go with me. You say, Don, do you have a good book on X, Y, Z, whatever it is? And I say, I sure do. And I can walk right over to the shelf and, and show you where it is. They're not indexed. They're not labeled. There's no Dewey Decimal. It's right here. I know where they are. Now, occasionally I forget. It happens. And I'll have to stand there and stare at the wall for a while. Sometimes I'm just, I'm just I'm, I look like I'm looking at the wall and I'm just going through my brain. Where did I put it? Where did I put it? I know where it is. Why? Because they're valuable to me. They have some value to me. And, um, and if I know where those silly books are that are of value to me, don't you know he knows everything about you? You're worth to him. You're, you are precious to him. The Bible has made it infinitely, ultimately clear that when he sent his son to die for you, it's because you are precious to him. Number three, he is a reliable and trusted source of guidance for his child. A reliable and trusted source of guidance for his child. In a passage that we looked at this morning, Mark 14, verse 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father, and Abba is like Daddy in Aramaic. 
Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, he wants you to trust him. We talked about that this morning. Your faith is like gold to us. It's like gold to him. Your faith is valuable to him because when you trust him, there is a, a bond that forms. And so he wants to win your heart in such a way that no matter what else is happening, you are able to trust him and that you are trusting him. And he wants to bring you to that place. He is not going to mess up your life if you do what he leads you to do. And many times our anxiety about following God and doing what he's leading us to do is I'm just, I'm just not sure, sure he's not going to mess me up. And I, you, you may be shocked to hear that plainly. And maybe you wouldn't admit to thinking that. But sometimes our fear of doing the will of God is we're just not sure about God. And he wants you to know that he cares about you that he can be trusted and Jesus as a son of God and as a human being came to a place where I really am not wild about this dying on the cross but I trust you I trust you and that's where the father wants to bring all his children his sons and daughters number four he offers emotional strength and safety when his child is in trouble. Amen? He offers us emotional strength and safety when his child is in trouble. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, our trouble, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort, the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You got that? Sounds confusing, but if you piece that together, it's beautiful. God comforts me, and he comforts me because he loves me, but one of the reasons he comforts me is so that when I encounter someone else who needs comfort, I have the resources to comfort them. When you are troubled, when you are upset, when you are worried, when you are afraid, when you are anxious, I'm sure somewhere in the back of your mind you've got an image of Don Pusick saying you ought not be afraid. But can I ask you to just forget that one for a while? Forget that preacher and what they say, all those preachers that tell you you ought not be afraid, being afraid of anything but God is a sin. I mean... You got all that going on, I shouldn't be anxious. I know they told me, they preached at me for years, I shouldn't worry. Listen, let me give you a whole different approach to that. If you are, if you are weighed down with anxiety, worry, trouble, fear, let me tell you what your first job is. It's not to feel guilty. Your first job is to go to him and to stay there until it goes away. When we started having children, we went, we were in Los Angeles, and 
we went through child birth classes, preparedness classes. It's not natural childbirth. You understand that. Natural childbirth is where they scream loudly. That's natural. Uh, prepared childbirth is where you have some idea of what's coming and what you can do about it, which isn't a lot, but some idea at least you're educated. And so we went through those classes. And, and in the process of that, I learned all kinds of neat things. And, and uh, we got pretty good at it. Gail was teaching people how to do it at one point. And, um, and so we, we went through that process. We did it with a, one child out there. They had this newfangled setup at Cedar sinai Medical Center where all the movie stars went to die. And, um, but it was called a LDR room. How many of y'all know what that is? Labor and delivery room. You do everything in the same room. Now, that was innovative when we started having children. Uh, because in the old days, you labored in one room and you delivered in another. And they made the guys leave, which I'm not sure wasn't a bad idea. But, um, but, but with prepared childbirth, the guys are supposed to be there. And I do, I do think that's important. If a guy's interested enough to be there at the beginning, he ought to be there at the end. Don't you? So in any event, prepared childbirth, labor and delivery in the same room. And, and so we went through that experience, first child, second child. We came back to Memphis um, to what was called Baptist East back then, and, and that's the main campus, but that's where we went to have uh, two more children. And when we were getting ready to have David, our son, he was 10 pounds, 12 ounces. And here's this little five foot three lady doing textbook breathing and all the stuff that they do to have this child. They had nurses lined outside the room. They were, if they'd had iPhones back then, they would have been taking pictures. This lady's really doing it. And when the time came to set up the bed for the delivery part, they didn't know how to do it because nobody had ever gotten that far. It was that new. I showed them how. Really. When we had our second child, Laura, I had learned that in the development of that child in the womb, that they are able to hear typically around month seven, before they're born, in the womb, around month seven. So I started talking to them. It's kind of odd talking to my wife's stomach, but I would talk to them. I read scripture to them. I'd sing to them. And, um, and they became accustomed to my voice. I've noticed, too, by the way, that some of your little babies, when they come in here, they, they know my voice. I'm just saying. So some of them have been sitting there the last two months, and they, they kind of know me. But, but Laura, our second born, it was really remarkable. When she was born, she came out just a squalling and hollering and so upset, so disturbed, so unhappy. They put her over in what I called the bun warmer, and, and they, they put her over there. And she was hollering, screaming, and, and Gail was going to be okay. So I walked over there to her, and I said, hey. I said, hey, Laura, and immediately she quieted down, immediately. No more crying, still, peaceful. She's the only baby we had that had colic later. And boy, she squalled and hollered when she had colic. And I would take that child, and I would rest her on my hand, and I'd hold her over my head, 
and she would just go, just relax. Like a, like a, just a limp doll, she'd relax, stop crying. Usually had a big burp or two, and she was fine. She's, uh, she's older now. When she's upset, I can talk to her now. And she calms down. You and I need to be so attuned to the voice of God that when he speaks to our heart, it doesn't matter what you and I are facing. It's not that bad anymore. The Father wants you to know his voice like that. And so when you're anxious, worried, and afraid, what you have done is taken something and made it bigger than God in your mind and heart. And it needs to shrink down, and he needs to be magnified. And so your first job when you're afraid, dear one, is to go to him and stay with him until you hear his voice and until his voice brings you the comfort God's word promises. Number five, he actively influences the spiritual development of his child. He actively influences it. Now, again, this is what God the Father does. This is what we are called to do, men. Ephesians uh, 6, uh, 1, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And, and although some translations will say parents bring your children up, it's not addressed to parents. It's addressed to fathers. Fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I, that's nothing against moms or single moms. It's just the way the scripture's written at that point. And so fathers bear this task because the Father, our Heavenly Father, bears this assignment. In um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, listen to how the Father gives attention to our growth. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Verse 10, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. That, that's, that's called a spanking, by the way as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. See, he's doing something in the discipline that he brings into our life. Verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. (laughs) That's an understatement, but painful as if it wasn't clear. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, trained, trained by it. Now, there's a difference between punishment and correction and training in the Bible. You need to understand that you have never been punished for your sins. So whatever else is happening to you circumstantially, and it it can be the chastisement, the discipline of God, it is not punishment. There's only one person who could withstand the punishment your sins deserve He has already done it, and that's Jesus. He carried your sins to the cross, and God punished him. You have never been punished for a single sin you've ever committed. That's not what this passage is talking about. Correction. Correction is a function of the Word of God. And correction helps you understand what you did and the consequences of it. Correction is designed to train you in righteousness to help you to be profitable, that you can partake of his holiness. Punishment is just to squash the sinner. I mean, it's, it's to deal justly with the sin. That's not what correction is. Correction is to grow you as a man of God, to grow you as a woman of God. 
And then this word training, uh, whereas correction instills wisdom and understanding, training, it becomes part of your life. It becomes a habit. And God's desire is that, that being like him, following him, listening to him, seeking him, becomes a habit of life. And that's what he does with you and me as a father. He doesn't leave you alone. You know, some of you are working hard to grow in Christ, and I bless God for it and don't stop. Some of you study his word. Some of you are seeking to grow as men and women, and you want to be like him. You want to grow in righteousness. Don't stop. But listen, God is doing far more to change you than you are yourself. His Holy Spirit in you is at work, and he is changing you in ways that you cannot fully understand on this side of heaven. He is changing your desires. He is changing your pursuit, what, what your, your pleasures. He's changing you from the inside out. He is at work. So the idea is that he puts us typically in circumstances that are designed to train us and to change us. Um, when you read about Job and Satan's attacks on Job and his belongings and his family and his things, there is this objective in the heart of God that Job pass the test, that Job be uh, tested and proven to be his son. Uh, one of my favorite passages, if you want to just jot it down, I'm going to read it to you. And I have mentioned it before, but I want to pause for just a moment and talk about it. And I want you to, to hear or maybe visualize how God chastens or disciplines us through circumstances. I saw this a couple years ago, and I have not been able to get it out of my mind. 1 Samuel chapter 30, the first six verses. Just listen. 1 Samuel 30, first six verses. Uh, David and his men, this is before he's a king. He is on the run from Saul. He is um, raiding the enemies of Israel under the guise of being a partner with the Philistines. It's all a ruse. And in 1 Samuel 30, verse 1, it says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. That's David's family, and those are the families of all of his men and all their stuff. It's been carried away. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Do you think that was a bad day? They wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Noam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So not only has David lost his family, his sons and daughters, and they've lost their wives and sons and daughters. But now the people are so unhappy with him that they're ready to stone him. And then the last phrase says this, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. 
I don't know what you would have done in that situation. But David, right after that, after he strengthened himself in the Lord, it says he went and he inquired of the Lord, Lord, what do we do? And God said, go get him. You'll get your stuff back. You'll get your families back. And he did. He got everything back. But the first thing David did was not, let's saddle up guys and go get our stuff and our wives. The first thing he did was, I got to strengthen myself in the Lord. When you are down here and you are whooped and everything and everybody is against you, you and I have got to learn how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. How to go where my Father is and be where my Father is and be alone with Him and being strengthened by that encounter. So then I can get back up and do what I got to do next. Have you ever strengthened yourself in the Lord? The father knew that circumstance was going to happen. The father knew that the wives and children were being carried off. The father knew this horrendous day was coming in David's life. And the father let it happen. Sometimes we don't understand that the Father's chastisement or discipline is training. Will David turn to me? Will David trust me? Will David strengthen his heart in me? The people are going to want to kill him. Everybody's against him. He's lost everything. What's he going to do next? Last thing I want to share with you. He takes the initiative to build and maintain a relationship with his child means he makes the first move in the relationship between you and him. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now we just read those words earlier. Who said them earlier? Jesus did in the garden, didn't he? Abba, Father. This is the same Spirit. Same Holy Spirit. If you're his son or you're his daughter this evening, that Spirit lives in you. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So if you're a Christian, the spirit of adoption lives in you, and he wants to bring you to a place where the most natural thing in the world for you is to turn to him and say, Abba, Father, it's a relationship he seeks from you. He redeemed you from the law, but it wasn't just about you getting your sins forgiven. It wasn't just about you getting out of hell and going to heaven. It wasn't just about cleaning up your life and taking a person who's bad and rotten and making them good and perfect. God's mission in life is not just so that you would be good and do the right things. His objective is that you would be in a relationship with him like a father with his child. That's what he wants most from you tonight. That's what he truly wants most from each of us.
is that we would be like children with their father. As you and I go through our weeks, I, I know how easy it is to get busy and to forget that my father loves me. And as I start my day, end my day, go through my day, he wants me to walk with him. He said, you're never alone. I'll always be with you. I'm not like a father who abandons you or who abandons you. I'm always there. He taught us to pray in such a way. We talked about this last Sunday night. When you pray, Jesus said, do it this way. Go into your room, close the door, and your father who sees in the secret place will reward you openly. And we understand from our standpoint, I need answers to prayer and I need to pray and I ought to do all of that. But do you realize that what that passage is saying in Matthew 6 is that the Father wants to be alone with me. The Father wants to be alone with you. And he wants you to enjoy him and he wants to enjoy you.